To stay informed of the latest updates, please follow at Germaniapod on Twitter and Instagram. You can always reach me directly by emailing gdupodcast at gmail.com. Hello. Welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.18, The First Kings of Europe. Between 313 and 324, the Roman Empire was divided into western and eastern spheres of influence, ruled by Constantine and Licinius, respectively. The two were united by the marriage of Licinius to Constantia, and not much else. By this point, it is pretty clear that Constantine saw it as his destiny to unify the empire under his rule, and one of the critical factors influencing his eventual victory was the continued Germanization of the empire. As mentioned before, since the German tribes existed outside of Roman political life, and as barbarians could not achieve imperial dignities, they continued to be viewed as trustworthy soldiers by the emperors. In the days of Augustus, this took the form of reliance on Batavian bodyguards to protect the imperial family. By the time of Constantine, this took the form of top generals to lead the military. Roman citizens by this point found military service so repellent that there are stories of young men amputating their thumbs to stay out of the legions. Treaties with the Franks and the Alamanni made those tribes primary sources of recruitment for Constantine. One of the earliest successes from this model was Bonitus. While we know very little about him, Bonitus was raised in a laity Frankish family that had settled in Gaul, most likely seeing the legions as his best opportunity for upward mobility and the potential for his family to gain citizenship, he joined the local garrisons. Eventually, during Constantine's reign, he rose to the rank of Magister Militum, the Master of Soldiers, the highest military rank in the empire behind the emperor. Bonitus served Constantine well, and was critical to his master's eventual victory over Licinius in 323 and 324. By the early 4th century, the western German tribes, particularly the Franks and Alamanni, were much less of a threat than they had been 50 years earlier. Constantine spent the early days of his reign reinforcing the borders of the Rhine, and had won the loyalty of the bulk of the tribes with members immigrating into Gaul and serving in the Roman legions. This put an eastern shift on the balance of imperial focus, as the Danube and Persia were now more critical frontiers to protect. While Constantine had a close relationship with the western Germans, Licinius had developed a strong relationship with the eastern Germans, particularly the branch of the Goths known as the Tervengi. On the Danube frontier, the former Dacian province was now controlled by the Tervingi Goths. They battled with the Vandals and Gepids over territory in the early 290s, and eventually emerged victorious. The written and archaeological records are not particularly clear on the exact location and chronology of the fighting, but one thing the written records make clear is that the tribes that the Tervingi were forced to battle were trying to settle in their territory because the land they had previously occupied was no longer productive enough agriculturally to support them. 
With their dominion around the Carpathian Mountains near Transylvania secure, the Trevingi entered into an alliance with Rome around 295 that held for a generation. In 297, when Galerius, still a Caesar, launched a war against the Sassanids in Persia, the Trevingi provided a large number of auxiliaries and were critical to the eventual victory. Licinius adopted these relationships as he ascended to power along the Danube in the early 300s. Once they were established as Augusti of West and East, Constantine and Licinius immediately took actions that made it clear they intended to rule unopposed. Licinius almost immediately ordered the murders of Flavius Severus, son of the former Western Augusti, and Candidianus, the son of Galerius and grandson of Diocletian. Stepping back a few years, following the death of Galerius, Maximin Daza had proposed marriage to his widow Valeria in an effort to secure his position. When she refused his offer, he ordered her into exile in the Syrian desert, along with her son Candidianus and her mother, the wife of Diocletian. Diocletian attempted to negotiate their return to his villa in Illyria, but by this point he was ill and close to death, and had neither the physical nor the political strength to secure their safety. Once Licinius defeated Maximin Daza, the party felt they were safe and returned to the court in Nicomedia. They were unfortunately mistaken, as Licinius almost immediately had Candidianus executed. Valeria and her mother attempted to escape, but they were caught in Thessalonica and executed as well. Licinius did not want anyone in the east who could claim to have some birthright to imperial power. In the west, Constantine looked to tie himself to one of the patrician families of Rome by marrying his sister Anastasia to the head of the family, a man named Bassianus. Bassianus had a younger brother, Senecio, who was allied with Licinius and was part of his court in Nicomedia. Shortly after the marriage, Constantine announced that he had uncovered a plot against his life that was led by Bassianus. Outraged at such treason, from his brother by law no less, Constantine had Bassianus arrested, tried, convicted, and executed in short order. But that was not enough. Senecio was identified as one of the co-conspirators, most likely at the prompting of Licinius. Constantine demanded that Licinius send Senecio back to the west to face justice. When Licinius refused, war was declared in 314. In October of that year, the two sides met for a major battle at Sibale in Pannonia, within the territory controlled by Licinius. The battle was hard fought, but Constantine led a cavalry charge late in the day that secured victory. However, with the sun setting, he was not able to finish the job, and Licinius and his army retreated. The two men attempted to paint a unified front by sharing a consulship in 315, but in 316 the war continued. Late that year, the two sides fought another major battle at Mardia in Thrace. Once again, the battle was fiercely contested and lasted all day. Once again, Constantine was able to gain the advantage towards the end of the day, and once again, Licinius was able to use the cover of night to extract his army in an orderly fashion. Constantine attempted to push his advantage by chasing Licinius to Byzantium. However, Licinius had not retreated to Byzantium. 
and as Constantine's army approached the city, Licinius and his troops appeared in their rear and cut off their lines of communication and supply, forcing Constantine to the bargaining table. In the ensuing peace treaty, they redrew the map between east and west, with Constantine taking over the entire Balkan peninsula except for Thrace. Basically, each man kept the territory he controlled at the time of the truce. You can find a map highlighting the split of the empire between east and west during this period on Instagram, at GermaniaPod. Throughout this contest, Constantine relied heavily on his Germanic allies within the Franks and the Alamanni to provide him with soldiers. By securing the territory in Illyria, he also secured the Roman legions along the Danube. The Danube and Rhine legions were consistently the best within the army, so when, not if, he and Licinius were forced to battle again, Constantine would now enjoy a massive advantage. More critically, control of the Danube frontier was now divided between the two men, with Constantine controlling the upper and middle Danube, and Licinius controlling the lower Danube and the Black Sea coast. While the Tervingi were now staunch Roman allies, smaller bands of Goths would periodically raid across the river, and the Sarmatians were still intractable opponents of the empire. Keeping the border secure would require close cooperation between both Augusti, and they were not exactly on speaking terms. In 322 or 323, a contingent of Tervingi Goths led by Rosimod took advantage of Licinius pulling back troops from the border to raid into Thrace. Despite the fact that the Goths were now attacking the Eastern Empire, Constantine took the initiative in organizing a response, going so far as to declare that any Roman collaborators with Rosimod would be burned alive. Constantine advanced his army across 300 miles, with major battles fought along the Margus River in Moesia and at the fort of Campona near the modern city of Budapest. Constantine eventually repaired an old bridge into Dacia at Veniniacum and pushed his army across the Danube. At some point during the different battles, Rosimod was killed. Now that Constantine had violated his territorial sovereignty, Licinius was enraged, and the facade of diplomacy finally fell. Licinius enjoyed an alliance with the Gothic prince Alica, who would stand by the Eastern Augustus for the rest of his life. In his biography of Constantine, G.P. Baker provides a noble interpretation of Constantine's actions. With the Rhine border secure, and the Western Germans brought into an alliance, the Goths along the lower Danube were the most important threat facing Rome. While they had not caused much trouble to the Romans for 50 years following their defeats by Claudius Gothicus and Aurelian, it was a large warlike people that was establishing dominion just beyond Rome's borders. To manage the Goths would require the entire areas of Illyricum and Asia Minor to be united, so, gosh darn it, for the good of imperial security, Constantine just had to depose Licinius to reunite the empire. That is one way of interpreting events. Maybe I'm just a cynic, but for all the good things he did during his life, Constantine was a vain and power-hungry individual. He did not want to be one of four or one of two rulers of the empire. He wanted to be a number one. While it was probably inevitable that the Tetrarchy would devolve into civil war, 
Constantine had a direct role in making that happen. When Licinius objected to the presence of Constantine's army in his sphere of influence, there was no chance Constantine was going to back down. Constantine assembled around 200 ships along the Greek coast and recalled his son Crispus from Gaul to lead his fleet. He had roughly 120,000 men assembled at Thessalonica. By this point, the native Frank Benitus was installed as Magister Militum, second in command to only Constantine himself, which speaks to the importance of the Frankish troops in Constantine's army. Licinius had over 150,000 troops at his command, including the Tervingai Goths led by Prince Alica. They fortified their front at Adrianople in modern Adern, Turkey, a city that we will be revisiting in the near future. He had a fleet of over 350 ships deployed in the Sea of Marmara in order to protect his retreat back through Byzantium. You can see this on a map on Instagram as well, at Germaniapod. Constantine advanced his men along the coast. As they approached Adrianople, they found Licinius' army camped between the Hebrus River on the south and mountainous terrain to their north, forcing Constantine into a frontal assault. However, Constantine's scouts identified a good crossing where the river narrowed. For several days, the troops engaged in light skirmishing, while Constantine first sent materials and engineers to a different spot to make Licinius think that that was where he intended to cross. Then, with 5,000 archers and a cohort of cavalry, Constantine crossed the river at the identified location, completely surprising Licinius. The Eastern Augustus lost over 30,000 men in the battle. Licinius retreated his army to Byzantium. The city could be resupplied by sea at will, as long as his fleet controlled the straits, and the geography of the city made it a bear to lay siege, something which Constantine clearly noted. While Constantine and his army built siege works in the summer of 323, Crispus took the fleet through the Dardanelles into the Sea of Marmara. Licinius' fleet vastly outnumbered him, but that actually made it harder for his ships to maneuver. On the second day of the battle, a major storm blew in with a strong southerly wind, which gave Crispus's ships more speed, while also blowing Licinius' ships off course, and over a hundred of them were sunk. By the end of the day, the Constinian fleet commanded the seas, and Byzantium was now isolated. Licinius had already retreated with most of his army into Asia, and he linked up with additional Gothic auxiliaries at Chalcedon, as well as a relief army that had been coming from Bithynia to reinforce Byzantium. They fortified the cliffs at Chrysopolis, that the more experienced western army was able to breach their defenses and capture the area, with over 25,000 of Licinius's troops left dead on the field. Licinius escaped the battle and retreated to Nicomedia, but he was finished. In the ensuing peace talks, Constantine agreed to let his brother-in-law live, but that was the only concession he made. Licinius went into exile in Thessalonica. Over the following year, he stayed in communication with his Gothic allies and was making plans to flee north to the Danube to reinvade with the barbarian army. At least, that was Constantine's later story. His plot was exposed, and Licinius was executed in 325. Constantine was now the unchallenged Augustus of the entire Roman world. 
in between his religious transformation and the founding of a new capital city, one of his major legacies was his policy towards the Goths. In 328, Constantine had a stone bridge reconstructed across the Danube, connecting Oescus in modern Bulgaria to Sukidava in modern Romania. He also had a new fortress constructed north of the Danube in Daphne, the modern city of Spantov, Romania, linked by a ferry system. It signaled an intent to bring the old province of Dacia back under Roman control. The Goths responded by withdrawing from the Danube, and the Tervingi and Tafali began to encroach more into their Carpathian mountains in Transylvania. In 332, the Tervingi went to war with the Sarmatians near Tissa. The Sarmatians appealed to Constantine for support. In an effort to preempt a Roman invasion, the Goths struck across the Danube into Illyria, and the most significant invasion since their defeat by Claudius Gothicus in 268, but they were driven back. A Roman army, led by Constantine's son, Constantine II, crossed north of the Danube and devastated the Gothic army. At the same time, Constantine sent a diplomatic mission to another branch of the Goths, the Gerthangai, located near modern Cherson, Ukraine, asking them to join his alliance and attack the Tervingai from the north. Cherson contained rich marble quarries, and it is likely that the Romans began trading with them during the construction of Constantinople. Based more on the steppe of southern Ukraine, the Gerthangai had developed the use of horse-drawn war carts upon which they could stack ammunition for their archers, and they used these to great effect in the battles they fought with the Tervingai in this period. In the aftermath of this defeat, the Tervingai were forced to flee up into the mountains. There are reports that as many as 100,000 men, women, and children starved or froze to death. In the aftermath, the first Tervingai king who is clearly recorded, Ariaric, took leadership of the tribe and he negotiated the first documented Roman Gothic treaty, though as many as five formal and informal treaties likely existed, stretching back to the mid-3rd century. This treaty in 332 required the Goths to provide auxiliaries for the Roman legions in exchange for an annual payment, and allowed the Goths to resume trading with Rome on favorable conditions. All of the Gothic chieftains were provided with fine gifts from Constantine's court to signify their new relationship as allies of Rome. Coins found in the area suggest that most trade occurred at the two fortified locations established by Constantine a few years earlier. Ariaric's son, Aoric, came to Constantinople as a hostage, as was tradition. In honor of his victory over the Goths and the re-established alliance, Constantine began celebrating the Gothic Games in the capital every year from February 4th to 9th. In honor of their new alliance with Rome, in 334, the Tervingai conducted a punitive campaign against Sarmatians who had broken their own pact with Rome. Led by the warrior Gaberic, the Goths forced the Sarmatians to flee to the Maros Muros River Valley and the protection of King Visimar of the Hasdingi Vandals. Gaberic led the Goths to victory against the Vandals, and they plundered the area before returning home. This marked the end of the road for the Sarmatians, who had long been stubborn enemies of Rome. Some of them chose to immigrate peacefully into the empire, 
while the remainder integrated with the Vandals along the upper Danube. With the destruction of the Sarmatians in the 330s, the region between the Carpathian Mountains and the Black Sea that makes up much of the territory of modern Romania, Moldova, and southern Ukraine came under the dominion of the Goths. It was during this period in the 320s and 330s that the kingdom of the great Gathungai Gothic king Ermanaric was established. Ermanaric was born around 300, and eventually he came to be seen as a great patriarch of the Goths. Later legends would tell of him having divine ancestry, and in stories of his life we see tales of the Gothic origins in Scandinavia. By 332, he would have been the overlord of the territory in southern Ukraine, so while it is not clearly documented, he was likely the one who authorized the attacks on the Tervingai. During his reign, Ermanaric would unify all the Gothic peoples except for the Tervingai under his banner. We do not know the full extent of his domains, but some stories hold that he ruled an area from the Black Sea to the Baltic coast, and as far east as the Ural Mountains. Most historians today discount those stories, as it seems that if Ermanaric ruled that large a territory for the majority of the century, we would have more records of his life than we do, as he would have been in close contact with Persia as well as Rome. Ermanaric ruled his Gothic kingdom until 376, when he died by suicide rather than surrender to the Huns. And what I think says more about he chooses to define a king more than anything else, G.P. Baker writes that Ermanaric was the first king of northern Europe. Quote, he was a man who began the overthrow of the tribal system, which hitherto had been the prevailing system in northern Europe. And he succeeded because he copied, not the Augustan Principate, but the monarchy of Constantine. In this sense, he was the first king of the Goths. Indeed, he was the first European king. The first who was not an elected tribal war chief, but was the chief of a political organization, a comitatus, or military guild, through which he fought and conquered and administered the territory under his government. He was not an elected magistrate, watched and controlled by tribal elders, to whom in peacetime he surrendered back his authority. He was a sovereign ruler. Unquote. Now, I think Baker is overstating things a bit here, particularly since the tribal system started to fade at least as early as the Marcomannic Wars, 150 years earlier. Part of his case relies on the supposition that Ermanaric's domains extended somewhere close to those massive borders I referred to before, and that he would have had to empower vassals to administer the area in his name. I don't think the evidence is so clear as all that. And calling him the first king of Europe seems undercut by how he immediately cites Constantine as an inspiration to Ermanaric. The important thing, I think, is that by the 4th century across Europe and Rome and beyond, we see a movement towards an increase in centralized power. We have rulers who are associating themselves more with the divine. Ermanaric's father was Amal, a priest within the Gothic religion. To this end, Ermanaric began resting his power on that lineage, a power which had not been granted by man, and no man could take away. As we discussed with Diocletian, we are seeing the beginnings of the divine right of kings in this period. The previous century in particular had shown that having power granted to a ruler from a tribal assembly, or from the people, 
or based on martial prowess, was too unstable. The shifting climate meant that the future was going to be less prosperous than the past. For any leader, it is important to have a clear answer to the question, why should I listen to you? This was the period when the Western Mediterranean and Northern Europe started embracing the answer, because God said so. Constantine's campaigns marked the last time that a Roman army would venture past the Danube to wage war on the Goths. The Treaty of 332 would keep peace between the two sides for 40 years. As Ermanaric unified the different tribes under his banner, the Goths were beginning their ascent. And while he couldn't have known it at the time, Constantine's empire was going to feel the brunt of that ascension. Thank you.